You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Fatima Abdurrahman of the Department of Astronomy. Welcome to the show, Fatima. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. So I hear you study black holes. I do, among a few other things. But yeah, that's kind of what occupies most of my time these days. How does one study black holes? That's a very good question. Uh, the question that might come before it is, why is a black hole hard to study? Why is uh, a black hole hard to study? <laughs> not to do your job for you. Uh, <laughs> it's but, cool. Uh, whatever you want. Right. So the, the thing about black holes, in case people aren't aware, the reason we call them black is that we cannot see them. So because of the very, very strong gravitational influence they have on the area around them, light cannot escape from a black hole once it gets too close in. So they are in- inherently invisible. For something to be a black hole means it is undetectable in itself. So that's why black holes are hard to study. So the whole point of what I try to do is kind of just trying to find them first. So I look for black holes and then try to count them, basically. (laughs) So how do you look for them? So there are many different ways that people have kind of overcome this difficulty of black holes being invisible and floating off in space very far away from us and have still managed to find some. The The ways people get around this is basically by looking at the effects black holes have on objects around them, or maybe not even necessarily around them, but objects between you and them, perhaps. So just like I always give the example of you can't see the wind, but you can see trees kind of leaning over, you can see hair blowing, you can see leaves blowing in the wind, whatever. So so we look for the effects. And the particular effect I look for in my research in order to determine whether or not there are black holes around is something called gravitational lensing. So if you were to imagine you're looking out at the sky and there's some star that you're looking at. If a big glass lens were to pass between you and the star, it would magnify the light from the star, right? Just kind of like a, a magnifying lens would. Right. That and makes you would sense. see some distortion, just like you see distortion anytime you look through glass. Okay. Well, turns out that if you have enough mass and enough gravity, anything can distort light the way a lens does. So if instead you replace that lens passing between you and a star with a black hole passing between you and a star, the black hole and its super strong gravitational influence can also work to warp space-time in such a way that the light coming from a background source, whether it's a star or whatever, is distorted. And so I look for that distortion and try to understand the signal we see in that distortion in order to infer the presence and then properties of a black hole. Okay, so the mass of an object actually bends light. Yeah. But it has to be, like, super massive. I mean, theoretically, anything does it. Anything so like, with mass. You and I could bend light. Sure, but just, like, by the tiniest, tiniest unmeasurable amounts. Right. So you would you would need an impossibly sensitive sensor right. to see light bended around a human being. Exactly. So anything with mass, technically, is distorting space-time to some degree. But a black hole is a thing with enough mass concentrated in a small enough volume that it produces these effects on scales we could see it. And in fact, other objects also produce the same effect. People can use this same technique to find planets orbiting other stars. Uh, it's pretty routine, 
routinely used to do that, in fact. And people have detected other objects like this. It just kind of lends itself really nicely to black holes because it is something, it is a technique that doesn't depend on seeing the object you care about, right? Right. So you could use it for anything. It's very useful to black holes, but also other things. Right. So it's easier to see things that are more massive. Um, so All other things being equal, yes. Oh, so like, what, is, what else is there to worry about? Um, everything you can think of, basically. <laughs> How far away is the black hole? How far away is the thing that's it's distorting? Does it pass by directly in front, or is it a little bit offset? How fast is everything in the equation moving? Like, is it the thing in the background stationary, or is it moving? Is it moving the opposite direction of the thing passing in front? There's, there's, there's quickly a lot of ways you can complicate this situation, but all other things being equal, the thing with more mass would create a bigger distortion, act as a stronger lens. Okay. So based on the distortion, you can tell whether or not you're looking at a black hole usually? Is that kind <laughs> so of how it works? The, the distortion tells you that something is there, <laughs> and then all my work is basically trying to determine what the something is. How Which, do you even do that? That's a that's a great question. Um, <laughs> is that like what you're doing right now? This is literally what I've been sitting at my desk doing all day. Um, it's it's basically a game of eliminating everything else, which kind of seems like an impossible task because there's a lot of things in the universe, you know. Like, if if we're looking for something invisible, then we can only fairly say it's that thing if it's nothing else, right? Because right. we're never even seeing this distortion, we're never going to be able to see it. Right. We're never going to be able to check what the thing, I mean, for now, what the thing <laughs> is. So we just have to say, is it a star of this variety? No, it's not that. Is it a planet? No, it's not that. Is it a neutron star? No, it's not that. And we have to come up with different clever ways to eliminate any other possibility of a thing very meticulously and with lots of data. Wait, the the thing that's come out recently, right, is the gravity waves. Right. Is that is that starting to help people to, quote-unquote, see black holes? So, yes. So gravitational waves, as have been detected by LIGO, are kind of what you get when you have not just a massive object existing, but a massive object accelerating. So if you have something very, very massive like a black hole and it accelerates, it emits gravitational waves, and then we detect them here on Earth. One really easy way to have things accelerating is things going around in orbits because circular motion is acceleration, physics 101. Um, and then if you have two black holes orbiting each other, this is a situation in which you would ideally measure gravitational waves because you have two very, very, very massive objects going around in circles, which means they're accelerating. And as they would fall into each other, they would accelerate even faster. So... By looking for gravitational waves, LIGO has been able to detect black holes. However, because of the nature of this detection method, they can only find black holes that are in binaries. It's always two black holes orbiting each other, or one black hole and one neutron star, or potentially two neutron stars. But you have to have a pair. What's a neutron star? A neutron star is... So a good way of summing up a lot of things in space is you have stars... And then when a star dies, different things could happen to it, depending on how big it is. The biggest stars will become black holes when they die. The second biggest class of stars will become neutron stars. And that's basically just another kind of end result or stellar corpse, as we say in astronomy, that is 
a big ball of neutrons, simply put. But then you have weird effects on them, like star quakes and like super fluid and super conductive interiors and all these crazy exotic things. So it, it's a big ball of neutrons, neutrons being just one of the particles and atoms, so like you right. got rid of all its protons. Exactly. No protons, no electrons. It's it's just the, the neutral part of atoms. Dang. Which is a weird thing to imagine, but we think it exists. I mean, like it's quote unquote been known to exist for a very long time the way we know anything in astronomy to exist. Right. I like putting conditions on that a little bit, but Sorry, I like got us <laughs> off topic. We were so talking many about why gravitational <laughs> waves. First off, I brought up gravitational <laughs> waves, but I'm not fully sure I understand what a gravitational wave is. Uh, so could you just describe that? Goodness, too? I'll try. I'll try. So let's see. What is a gravitational wave? What's the best way to put this? When you drop a stone into a po- um, into a pond. You can see the ripples kind of move outwards from where that stone fell in, right? And if you think of what the ripples actually are, it's like uh, almost a ring of density emanating outwards, right? Like there's a little bit of the water that's all bunched together, and that bunch propagates through the water, right? It moves out from the center. Right. And then you have continuous bands of, like, higher density, right? Right. So imagine that, except instead of water being the thing that you have rings of density emanating outward from the center, it's space itself. So a gravitational wave is a wave that propagates through space itself. So sound waves move through air, water waves move through water, gravitational waves move through space itself, which is a very out there idea to imagine but it's literally like the the space we exist in contracting and expanding in these like ripples outwards from wherever two black holes are smashing into each other somewhere in the galaxy we ourselves and everything around us is expanding and contracting exactly in tiny tiny minute ways and the reason we can't tell besides the fact that it's very tiny, is because anything we would use as a reference point against which to measure these contractions and expansions, basically, you get from wave, is also subject to that, right? So if, like, if this room that we're in just, like, shrunk by an inch, the ruler we would want to use to measure the change in the size of the room also shrunk by some scale-appropriate amount. Whoa. So... (laughs) Like, these gravitational waves are, are, are moving through the universe, but almost anything we could use to measure them are kind of useless. So, <laughs> how do you even handle that? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, definitely wasn't setting you up for that one. Uh, the answer is lasers. So, the one thing that is exempt from this uh, brutal contraction and expansion of gravitational waves that we're all subject to is light. So light has this remarkable quality that no matter, well, I shouldn't make any like really uh, all-encompassing statements. So light uh, will still travel the same distance in whatever amount of time, even if there are gravitational waves happening in the space it's in, basically. So if you would imagine the, the detectors they've built for gravitational waves are these really, really long tunnels, like 
I don't know if they're like a mile or several miles or like less than a mile, but like roughly that scale, like really, really, really big structures, right? And you shoot a laser down these tunnels and you have two of them that are perpendicular to each other and there are mirrors or whatever at the other side sending them back and you, or maybe it's just a sensor detecting when the laser light arrives there and you know how long the tunnel is and you know how fast light travels. So if you send your little laser pulse and it gets to the end of that tunnel a mile long in a time that is different from what you expect, that means that the space that the laser was traveling through must have changed. Dang. Right? That's yeah. insane. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Hopefully I'm, I'm making this clear at least a little bit. But that's basically it. It's, it's you know how fast light is moving so if you set light on a certain path and it deviates from that path you expect it to be on that must be because space-time is all warped wow right that is so crazy it's really it's pretty crazy uh just a reminder that you're tuned in to the graduates i'm speaking today with fatima abdurrahman of the department of astronomy okay honest question okay when you think about things in astronomy, sure. do they actually make like conceptual sense to you at a certain level? Like sometimes. Or, so you just kind of have to like this is, this is the physics of it, and that's how I'm going to understand it. Or can you ever actually? Are there things like you just can't like comprehend on a certain level? It, it really depends. I, I will admit that I'm very often not confident about much of the things I say. Many of the things I say, right? Because. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's just crazy to me when people say stuff about something that happened 13 billion years ago, however many light years away, when the universe was a tiny speck or what. Like, I mean, it's not like we don't use a lot of data and rigorous methods to support everything we do in astronomy, but I, I never feel confident being like, yes, there there is a neutron star at exactly this position in the galaxy doing exactly that. Like, I mean, there's so many, like, steps of logic we needed to take to get there. So right. I, I always kind of approach everything with a little bit of hesitation. But then even beyond that, I mean, there are plenty of things. Like when, when somebody says, and then space-time is warped. Like, we live in a 3D world and experience time. It's physically impossible for me to conceptualize what that even means right you can kind of try to understand things like that through analogy by like describing two dimensions and then projecting what your understanding in two dimensions is to three dimensions so you can kind of build an intuition for something you don't even really understand it's when you don't really understand the thing itself if that makes any sense yeah and then there's also the case that sometimes just math is like where i put my trust in like the derivation shows this I have no physical intuition of this because nothing like it exists on Earth, but I trust math pretty, pretty well. So yeah, that makes that. sense. Yeah, yeah. Does you would say like a lot of astronomy is putting faith in math? I mean, I, I would think a lot of physics in general is yeah. putting faith in math. <laughs> I, I think is the the better way of putting it. Yeah. Are, would you say that you're like a math genius? No, not by him. <laughs> I, I would hope not, just because I don't want to be that arrogant at any point. But, I, I mean, I like math, but I also kind of think that math is just taught poorly and anybody could be good at math if they just had good teachers. 
Okay. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't think math skills is anything remarkable. It's just kind of hard to acquire in the education education system we live in. Right. So, like, you think just about anybody could get... Like, the math isn't beyond anybody that wants to be an astronomer. No. I mean, I... I... This might just be, like, getting into philosophy and stuff, but I'm kind of of the belief that... Uh, I mean, saying anybody can do anything is, a, I sound a little bit like a motivational poster or something, but there's always this idea of math being like this really inaccessible thing. People are just born with the ability to do sometimes. And if you're not good with numbers, then you're not good with numbers. And that's this side of the brain. And I'm good at that side of the brain or whatever it is. But it's, I, I think our education system is just awful when it comes to like STEM being a poorly taught thing is not a new idea right. whatsoever, right? And I think math is just the most egregious example of that. There's just so many things that get people in today's society hung up about their abilities in math that just prevent them from learning from it or being interested in it or anything. So, yeah, I think anybody with the, you know, curiosity, curiosity motivating them to study astronomy, if they, like, had a good teacher or good resources and put their mind to it would be able to learn the math necessary but would you say that you had good math teachers is that kind of how um, you were able to get into astronomy so i kind of cheated my dad's a physicist ah, um so <laughs> i kind of had a like my success is very much just a a function of the conditions that i grew up under basically right. i'm not a math genius i am not any kind of special person in astronomy. I just like space a lot and have a curiosity about it. And I think that was very much kind of fostered by my dad when I was young. And then that kind of just set me up to enjoy math a little bit more as a kid, especially because I, you know, had a... Actually, people always were like, oh, you can just ask your dad for help on your homework. But that's actually a really awful thing to do. And all my siblings would, like, make a joke about if you ask him anything... He'll, like, lecture you for hours because mm, it'll just, like, go off on to, like, as, like, a, a third grader, I asked him a question about, like, what's an exponent? And then I got, like, <laughs> a several-hour lecture on, like, logarithms. And, I mean, that sounds not very complicated now, but, like, as a little kid, like, I didn't even know what the word was, and he was just talking at me. And, yeah, so that was... That was fun. And then you went into school and tried to explain logarithms, and your teacher said, hey, we're doing exponents. Please. You know what's actually <laughs> funny? So this is, I'm, like, outing myself as a huge dork. Um, I was in, like, a math contest in, like, middle school or something, maybe high school. Middle school, I think. And it was, like, each week we had, like, a challenge problem that we would take home for the... <sighs> such a nerd. We would take home for the <laughs> weekend and try to work out and see if anybody could come up with it the next week. And I remember there was one week that I was the only one who got it, but that's because I asked my dad... To help me with it and basically I don't know it was like a statistics problem and the way he decided to solve it for like sixth grade me was like using the Monte Carlo method which I don't know <laughs> if your listening listeners are familiar with statistical analysis but this is not something you would do in sixth grade in fact this is something that I only properly learned at grad school right but literally like he just pulled out excel and like made a Monte Carlo simulator to simulate whatever little stats problem I had for this contest and I went to school and presented that as the answer they're like how did you do this and I'm just like you know I read a book 
<laughs> um, Wait, what even was? Why would the question even? I'm sure. That? I'm sure there was some <laughs> other way to solve it. Right. But like, okay. that's just the thing he came up with when I asked for help, <laughs> and it's it's just to illustrate the nonsense of those interactions. If if you would ask him for help on something where it's just like way throwing more at the problem than is needed. Yeah. What was it? How was it going when you first got to your undergrad interacting with professors that weren't your dad? I mean, kind of nice because they were all like used to answering questions and not needing three hours to answer it. You know, uh-huh. like they prioritize their time well. I mean, it was it was kind of nice because like when I, when I mean, I when I started studying physics, because in, in undergrad I started with physics, not, not astronomy, that came in later. It was kind of cool to constantly be surrounded by other nerds. Right. Because how it was in my house growing up, or even now, like, whenever our family is together, it's like there's all the normal people in my family. And then, like, me and my dad sit around in, in a corner and do math problems together. <laughs> so now everybody was like that, you know? Right. Like, everybody thought, like physics puns were funny and everybody thought like a really difficult riddle was like a fun way to spend an hour all of a sudden you were like the coolest kid right right right. i'm like i'm like the coolest physicist person (laughs) in which is a very very low bar (laughs) no i'm joking that's not that's not even true of the the students i work with now but yeah it's if anything, I've gotten too used to only being around other astronomers now, because mm. now it's like you go out into the normal world and you try to talk about something, something, order of magnitude, and people are like, what are you saying? So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I would, I think if you started explaining gravitational waves, people would just kind of say, oh, okay, yeah. Is that how conversations <laughs> mostly go? Um. Well... Because I get really, really into it, if somebody, so if somebody was at my house and asked me that, I would pull out a whiteboard. And I'm not, I'm not joking. Like, I actually have a whiteboard. It's huge. Everybody who comes through my apartment sees it because at some point I'll, like, compulsively need to explain something in great detail and I'll be drawing diagrams for you until you understand it, basically. So, uh. So, you you're kind of like your dad now. Oh yeah, no no no. I'm a I'm a carbon <laughs> copy. Like he just cloned himself. Nice. Yeah, it's it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so when you got to undergrad, how I guess you were kind of like used to the whole academic environment. So was it pretty easy to get into research right away or Uh, I got into research. I mean, I went to a a really good school for research. So I went to University of Maryland. Our It's remarkably easy for undergrads to do research there they literally had a class in the physics department that's like if you sign up for this class we'll teach you how to do research and then sign you up for a project with somebody oh nice so it was like pretty straightforward that was like my sophomore or junior year of college sophomore year of college yes and i remember that very first project i worked on was actually also on black holes even though i've done a bunch of different things in between now and then and it was, it's basically the kind of thing I think that once you get your foot in the door, you're just kind of like in it, you know? Like once you get that first research opportunity, then that's your jumping off point and you can apply to other internships for research positions. And then you have all this stuff for grad school and then it's just snowballs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, but how did you decide to get here? Like, why did you pick Berkeley? You know, that's funny because it was such an afterthought. I had the same list of, like, seven or eight grad schools I was planning on applying to for, like, two years. Right. And then, like, a couple was days... Was Berkeley one of them? No, it okay. wasn't. And then a couple days before the Berkeley deadline, I'm like, what about this school? It, it looks kind of nice. That sounds like I'm, like have this really high I didn't like get into like all the ivies or something but it just like never occurred to me to think of Berkeley for some reason and it was weird because like within the span of like a couple days it went from being not on my like several year long list to being the top of it and it was like a combination of like really good astronomy program cool area blah 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 and and for some reason just like over the course of a couple days I'm like man I really really want to go to Berkeley and somehow it's was the first place I heard back from and as soon as I got that call and they're like oh you got in I just emailed everybody else and I'm like nope not interested cut off the whole admissions process kind of early which sounds kind of reckless and like I wasn't putting a lot of thought into my decisions this is the person who makes spreadsheets right how did (laughs) this happen (laughs) <laughs> like just at decide like every, it's weird because like I swear to God I put so much thought and effort and energy and planning into the tiniest decisions, and then the really big ones are just like snap judgments whenever it hits me. You know, like yeah. like that that backpack I have over there. I literally spent two years shopping for that backpack. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have time to actually? enjoy the bay or do you spend a lot of time doing research i think my department's really good about work-life balance for the most part when i came and visited the school before i got accepted uh, i was really impressed by how much it seemed like all the grad students had going on so i I got to come visit and meet everybody and see what they were all doing and besides the fact that they were all really cool and i wanted to be friends and work with them they all like i mean like half of them are like super serious rock climbers that like go on all these climbing trips or Honestly, I feel like everybody has, like, some really cool thing that occupies their time outside of research that they spend a lot of time on. And you don't really see people in our department sitting there for, until late hours of the night trying to get research done. Like, it, it's it's really not that kind of energy, I guess, in our department, which is wonderful and yeah. I love. Wait, what were you saying? I was just going to say you don't stay up late into the night even though <laughs> you look Because it's stars. astronomy. Yeah. So... Actually, I do a lot. Not everybody who studies astronomy does that. It's only the observers, the theorists don't have to. But the the nice when I do do that, I I don't wake up and go to work in the morning. Like right. I just switch, you know. Nice. Um, I'm still like if I have to spend the whole night working, I'm just not gonna work for two days after that. <laughs> so <laughs> That's like, pretty cool. in in the end, it it ends up even, even if some of it's at really weird hours, which is super fun (laughs) wait is there like a a telescope here on campus that you so there is a telescope here on campus uh, on the roof of our department it's basically just for pr and teaching Uh, um the telescopes i use are primarily in hawaii nice uh sometimes i get to go out there to use them is that why you're an astronomer you know you would think that that's I mean, it's nice because I do get to go out to Hawaii a lot, but observing sucks. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to show... Like, I like astronomy, and I'll, I'll endure, endure observing for the end result, but, like, people always imagine, like, oh, you're sitting outside at night looking through a telescope. How romantic. But in reality, it's like you're on a mountain. It's 14,000 feet up, which means you're at 40% oxygen, 
so you can't breathe. Dang. Well, you kind of can, but, like, it's basically the same amount of functionality as if everybody were drunk. <laughs> um, and that's not an exaggeration. Like, it's really awful being at altitude like that. There's, like, oxygen tanks everywhere that we're all using the whole night. <laughs> and it's you have to work at night. Like, literally, I would get there to the summit as the sun is setting, work until sunrise, then go to sleep. Because you're, the telescope has to be open to the sky, so you're basically outside. And if you're on a mountain that's 14,000 feet up, there's snow on the ground, so it's freezing. So it's And then because you can't have light from whatever sources interfering with the telescope, you work in the dark. So it's dark, cold, middle of the night, and you can't breathe. And you're just trying to do really intense, complicated work with really high stakes. And it's I'll just have like a week of that. All right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that it's a, doesn't sound like as fun as I thought it was going to sound. It's, it's not. It's, <laughs> but, you know, Hawaii. <laughs> That's the thing. I've gone down there and, like, not seen the beach at all or, like, not seen the sun except on the day that I arrive or something. Dang. Right? But, like, sometimes I'll, like, be able to hang out a few days extra and make it worth it. Well, so we've definitely talked for longer than these 30 minutes, and you can listen to the rest of the show on our podcast uh, at on CalX's website. But as we wrap up, uh, Fatima, is there anything that you would like to leave us with? The nature of science or reality? or I mean, I, I think people always hear all that kind of thing about looking at the whole universe makes us feel very small, but it's also kind of beautiful because we're a part of it, you know? Like the Sagan quote about star stuff, thinking about stars, like, yes, we're a tiny, tiny bit of the universe, but we're also the same stuff that the rest of the universe is and are this crazy anomaly of things existing in mostly empty space. So, yes, it's kind of existentially depressing, but it's also kind of beautiful and amazing at the same time that we could even exist in all of this so eh. very true yeah, yeah. It's, i feel better i'm glad thank you i'm, I'm glad <laughs> that was that was the goal today i've been speaking with fatima abdurrahman the department of astronomy we've talked about her research and her path to astronomy i would summarize what we talked about but i'm Still, it was a lot. Yeah, and it was like a lot of stuff to process, so I'll just let you <laughs> listen back to it on the podcast. <laughs> I'm Andrew Saintsing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. Tune in to our next episode in two weeks.